0: The other investigator on this program is Dr. Adam Browski, who visited the practice of Dr. Patricia DeFusco in Wethersfield, Connecticut. And in a wrap-up discussion after the clinic, Dr. DeFusco began by discussing a young woman who initially presented with a locally advanced triple negative primary tumor.
1: She's 35 years old. She presented in July with a large left breast mass. By MRI, it was about 3.8 centimeters. And on exam, it was more like 6.3 by 2.8 centimeters. It was mobile with respect to the chest wall, and there were no inflammatory changes clinically. She had had BRCA testing, which was negative. A CAT scan showed two hypodensities in the left lobe of the liver. And she had left retropectoral and left axillary adenopathy. The biopsy on the breast confirmed that this was an invasive ductal carcinoma, ERPR HER2 negative. She had an FNA of an axillary lymph node that was also positive, and she had a needle biopsy of the liver that showed malignant cells consistent with breast primary. So I treated her with cisplatinum every three weeks for six cycles. And on that regimen, she had a clinical complete response as well as radiographic resolution of the liver lesions. And she went to surgery in December for a laparoscopic resection of the liver that was negative for malignant cells. And in January, she had a left-modified radical mastectomy and a prophylactic right mastectomy that showed a PCR in both the lymph nodes and the breast.
0: So I'll say wow.
1: <laughs> I know wow.
0: <laughs> it was amazing. Good way to get started here. Wow. Yes. Uh, interesting. First of all, I guess I'm just kind of curious, looking back over this case, Adam. What your thoughts are? Kind of interesting that in the face of biopsy-proven metastatic disease, she's had you know this surgery. But what are your thoughts about what happened here?
2: Well, let's start from the beginning. I mean, I think that, you know, I've never been a huge platinum fan. I was telling this to Pat earlier today. You know, Edith Perez and I actually did some of the first trials Of platinum and chemotherapy, probably now we're talking 15 years ago. And, you know, the responses were great, but I remember at the time I was just telling Pat, you know, we knew that in the first line, the response rate was only 30%. And also there were very few pathologic CRs. Now, you know, this lady presented with triple negative breast cancer. And we also talked about the fact that some of these people with triple negative breast cancer, even though they're BRCA1 and 2 negative, may have kind of a DNA repair mismatch phenotype. You know, we're not a mismatch phenotype, but a DNA repair defect phenotype.
0: So-called brachiness.
2: Yeah, Brachanus. I mean, you know, people are commercially trying to develop these. And maybe this is the phenotype this lady had, you know, again, I think platinum was an interesting regimen. I probably would have started, probably with, most of us would probably start with the taxane. But, you know, you can't argue with success here. I mean, the lady has had a pathological response.
0: So before we kind of get more into this, maybe you can provide an update in terms of the issue of neoadjuvant therapy of triple negative breast cancer, specifically with reference to platinums. Because, you know, to me, one of the more interesting presentations of the past year was at San Antonio, the CALGB trial. Mm -hmm. that looked at that. Adam, do you want to comment on what they saw there and what you think it means?
2: Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, they actually, Bill Seacoff was the first primary author of that study. And in that trial, it was a neoadjuvant trial where I think it was randomized to ACT or ACT with platinum. And then the patients who got the platinum, they had, I think, a 15%, 13 15% improvement in pathologic CR rate. Right. But a 10-ish. And the PCR rate of them, I think, it was about 50-ish, 50, 52%. I think that a lot of us who'd been skeptical of platinums in the past, you know, are probably for triple negative disease, are going to think about including them now as part of a more comprehensive regimen.
0: Yeah, and of course, there it was given with a taxane, and then it was followed Correct. by AC. But another aspect of the San Antonio meetings this year where there were a couple of presentations looking at this question that's been out there for a few years about local therapy in the breast of patients with metastatic disease, which again, this lady had. She had a bilateral mastectomy in the face of biopsy-proven metastatic disease. Again, can you talk about what was presented there? I think that's the first time I remember seeing randomized data looking at that. There were two trials, one I think from India and the other one, forget where the other one was from. From Turkey. Right, Turkey, right. So there was a
2: Turkish trial and an Indian trial, and both were trials where, you know, they kind of randomized the patients to surgery or no surgery. And in the Indian trial, there apparently was no difference in overall survival in those patients. And in fact, there looked like it was a detriment in patients with visceral disease who had resection of the breast primary. In the Turkish trial, there seemed to be an improvement in overall survival of the people who had, like, oligometastatic disease, one or two bone metastases in particular. In the visceral disease, there was no benefit at all in the Turkish trial. But one thing that needs to be kind of recognized, and both the principal investigator of the Turkish trial as well as the principal investigator of the Indian trial, one thing that they both commented on is that Even though a certain percentage of those metastatic patients were HER2 positive, nobody received trastuzumab. And I think that that is an important fact that really isn't discussed. And additionally, the kind of systemic therapy that's given in Turkey and in India during the time period of those trials is probably not contemporaneous to what's given in Western countries like the United States. So I tend to take those trials, even though they are clearly randomized studies, I tend to take them a little bit more with a grain of salt than others.
0: Seema Khan, the surgeon who's been involved with a lot of this, did the discussion of those papers at San Antonio and, in her conclusion, basically said that the strategy of local therapy in the face of metastatic disease should be reserved for patients where there's a local control issue only. Adam, agree or disagree?
2: I disagree. I think for the reason that I think people were concerned, I think Dr. Khan and many, And the reason behind that is that there seemed to be a detriment in overall survival to the people who had visceral disease who had the primary resected. And so I think that the case that we're talking about now is a little bit different. It's a little bit different than that kind of case, because this is a case where someone had the metastasis resected, not necessarily the primary resected. They had both resected, actually. But I tend to, I think, especially in the setting of a PCR, I tend to think very strongly about aggressive local therapy.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, untreated 35-year-old lady is totally understandable, but, you know, let's face it, what you've done here, Pat, is a little bit outside the usual bounds, particularly resecting a hepatic metastasis. What were you thinking, and kind of what kind of discussions went on with the patient? How involved was she in these decisions?
1: Well, she was very involved in the decisions, and I think part of my thinking was that these were two lesions that were adjacent to each other, and they were very kind of close to the margin of the liver, and so they weren't deep within the substance of the liver, my thought was that in part, we also don't know what the natural history is of people with oligometastatic disease. And that's really what she had was oligometastatic disease. It was just these two areas localized in the liver without systemic spread. So when I made the decision to do the platinum, I mean, I did it in part because of, you know, some of the, granted she was metastatic disease, but, you know, the Dana-Farber data did suggest that there would be a high PCR with platinum. And maybe in part, you know, recent previous experience with ACT had in been as helpful in patients with this kind of presentation. And so after two cycles of the platinum, she definitely had a clinical response within the breast. And I did another MR of the liver. And the lesions were almost totally gone. And so we talked as we went through the process about whether to remove this, and I told her, you know, that there really wasn't a lot of guidance to go by in terms of clinical data, that removing these lesions would not, I couldn't guarantee her that this would improve her survival, but given that she had had such a good response within the liver radiographically and in the breast, and given her age, and given that these were in an area where surgically they were amenable to resection, and given the experience from the colorectal, you know, arena, it wouldn't be unreasonable to try to see if these could be resected. And so she proceeded with the partial resection of the liver first, and when we found that there was a pathologic CR in the liver, then we proceeded with our decision-making for the breast.
0: So since we're talking about triple negative disease, in the metastatic setting, how do you sequence the various available agents? And we're seeing data coming out over the past year of a big phase three trial of metastatic HER2 negative disease comparing Cape Cytobine to aribulin, and it looked there like the patients with triple negative disease seemed to do better on aribulin.
2: Yeah, just talking about that trial, I mean, I think that as we'll see, I think we're going to talk about another case coming up. I like Arubulin, I've liked it for a long time, both in ER negative and in ER positive metastatic disease. I tend to really like Arubulin. I think that that trial, you know, it's hard to know it was subset analysis of a larger study. Whether there truly was benefit in the triple negative subset or not is unclear. I tend to, there are people who do not like to use capecitabine in the setting in triple negative breast cancer. I think this is a perfect way to use it in a woman with very minimal disease that you may have on therapy for a long time. So I don't have a problem with that. But generally, my regimen really doesn't change much between someone who's triple negative versus someone who is, s receptor positive that is now hormone resistant. It's pretty much the same. Usually a taxane first, then maybe second, a rubulin, third maybe capecitabine, fourth maybe gemcitabine, something like that, along those lines. And I'm not 100% sure the actual sequence matters per se.
0: So I'd like to hear a little bit more about this patient's lifestyle and you know her family life and work. But before we get to that, just a couple more sort of research issues, Adam. This lady. As you said, she seems to have an unusual, maybe kind of tumor, BRCA-like or whatever, that's responded so well to cisplatinum. Where are we today in terms of trying to find other agents and strategies in triple negative breast cancer? I was fascinated by a presentation at San Antonio. We've been talking about jack inhibition and myelofibrosis the last couple of years. It's really a cool, cool topic. You have the ruxolitinib out there that's really having incredible clinical benefit in these patients. Now we're starting to see if JAK inhibition being talked about in other cancers. There's a pancreatic cancer press release out there that we don't know anything about, supposedly positive. And at San Antonio, again, there was a presentation suggesting that maybe some patients have over-accentuation of the JAK pathway. Any thoughts about that or other sort of novel approaches to triple negative disease?
2: The comment on the jack inhibition is a very interesting one. I mean, I think that there was a very interesting presentation by the group at Duke, and Kim Blackwell had a very nice talk where they talked about whole exome sequencing of I think about between somewhere between 30 and 50 patients with triple negative metastatic breast cancer where they really compared it to the primary. So they had blood for total genomic DNA, they had the primary tumor, and they had the met. What was interesting about this, and they did whole exome sequencing of this, and they actually found several patients who had JAK1 mutations. And I think that this, to me, suggests that there probably are going to be patients with JAK1 mutations with triple negative disease who definitely are going to try trials of these jack inhibitors. I'm very excited about that. That's probably one of the more exciting things for me that came out of the last San Antonio.
0: Although we know that these agents seem to help people without Jack mutations. in pancreatic cancer, they don't have jack mutations, supposedly. There's right. positive stuff going on. So I guess we'll see more as this evolves. I'm curious about this lady, you know, kind of out of the blue, as we often see in younger women coming in with this very scary situation. Pat, what was her life environment? What kind of work does she do, her family?
1: She's a teacher. She teaches eighth grade. She's married, and she just had had her second child the September prior to her diagnosis. So she has two children. One is about, I think, four years old, and the other one is about 18 months. So she was very frightened when I first met her. We talked about the possibility of clinical trials for neoadjuvant before she was found to have the liver lesions. But I think she was motivated to be as aggressive as possible. And, and again, if the liver lesions had not responded, if the breast had not responded, if if the liver lesions were not where they were, I think my approach would have been somewhat different. But she had such a good response to her therapy that I felt that trying to give her the best chance to resect, you know, the oligometastatic disease in the primary was reasonable. And I think we don't know. I mean, I think back and looking back over patients I've treated in the past who've maybe had PCRs, how many of them might have had these small metastatic deposits, but we never were able to detect them with our scans. So I just didn't feel like I could say that this is metastatic disease, sorry, this isn't curable. We just go ahead and, you know, treat, say, with the taxane and see how you do. I think it was worth trying to be aggressive. And I've been very forthright with her about the limitations to what we know and don't know about this. Part of our discussion today as well was whether we should proceed with post-mastectomy radiation, given at least the clinical size of the tumor. And I think in the face of the fact that we've been so aggressive everywhere else and given the clinical size, the recommendation has been made that she proceed with the post-mastectomy radiation. But again, that's a pretty controversial area that we really don't have a good answer to. And unfortunately, we don't have the NRG trial open yet at our institution that might address that, although she probably wouldn't be eligible because she's got the proven metastatic disease.
0: Any comment about that issue, Adam, the radiation therapy?
2: Yeah, you know, we talked about this backwards and forth. Again, I think even if she did not have metastatic disease, the size of the tumor by MRI was about four centimeters. Right. And there was an issue as to how many nodes she had pre-op or pre-chemo. And it would have been a soft call even if she hadn't had metastatic disease. I think it's an interesting dilemma here. I don't know what our group would have done, but I think this is definitely within the realm of possible treatments for her. I mean, again, especially if you're being aggressive, as they are. I don't have a problem with it. I'm not sure we necessarily would have done it, but I can see how they have come to that decision.
0: I'm also curious, and I'll ask you you know, about all these patients, Adam, because it's kind of a unique opportunity to sort of look over an oncologist's shoulder and sort of see what's going on. Here's this young woman She's nursing a baby and finds out she has triple negative breast cancer, metastatic to the liver. Now you're seeing her, you know, eight or nine months later after having gone through, you know, chemo. What were your observations on her as a person?
2: Oh, she looked great. I'll tell you, she looked fabulous. She made it through everything. Really, I mean, the only thing we were really talking about is whether she had neuropathy from her platinum or not. Even if it was, it wasn't that maybe grade one to two. You know, she looked really good. I mean, her biggest concern really was how to schedule the remainder of her reconstruction procedure as well as her radiation with kind of her daughter. She has a daughter who's five, you know, trying to figure, kind of schedule that in. But she was a typical mom now. She looked great.
0: That's interesting. Reconstruction. What kind of reconstruction is she getting?
1: She had bilateral expanders placed, and she'll get permanent implants.
0: It also brings up a question I've heard occasionally comes up, which is the type of reconstruction in patients who have metastatic disease. You know, do you go as far as a TRAM flap? Any thoughts, Adam?
2: Well, again, I mean, I think that, you know, it depends on what your philosophy of treatment is. And, you know, if we're treating this more like a lymphoma as opposed to a solid tumor that isn't going to really truly have a pathologic... Complete response. I mean, this woman had a pathologic complete response. And to me... That may bode very well for at least your intermediate to longer-term prognosis. I mean, would we be doing a tram flap reconstruction, someone with 10 nodes positive, Neil? You know, I mean, this is the same thing. And we would. And so the thing is that, why not now? We're just kind of pushing the envelope even a little bit further.
0: One final question, just again in this issue of oligometastatic disease and surgery. I believe you've got a really great hepatic surgery team at your place. Am I correct,
2: Adam? Yes, I do. In fact, the guy who developed laparoscopic liver resection is at our institution.
0: Dave Geller, yeah, he's been on our program. So I'm just kind of curious over the last year, how many patients with breast cancer have you had liver mets taken out in?
2: In the last three months? About three, yeah.
0: Wow. Got to say that's pretty unusual.
2: It is because what happens is that, you know, I'll have someone come in. Oftentimes we'll be thinking about a biopsy. So, you know, we don't know what it is. It's a small thing, maybe one centimeter, a half a centimeter. And I send the patient to Dave, and Dave goes, Look, let me just take it out. You know, and why not? We're here. We might as well just take it out. That's kind of how it works.
0: Fascinating.